Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Uh, we're going to read the whole chapter this morning, and it's going to remind us of what we've been thinking about, namely the repentance that God's calling us to and the gift of the Holy Spirit that He is giving to us as we repent. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt round his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. For Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And here's our passage for this morning. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, would you please... Uh, pour out Your Spirit on the reading and the teaching of Your Word so that Your people have their hearts burn within them and so we're strengthened for obedience in these difficult days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the Christian Academy of Louisville is, to the best of my knowledge, Louisville's largest Christian school. It's actually a school system. The Christian Academy school system is made up of four schools, and there's roughly uh, 3,000 plus students. And the school teaches students from 340 local area churches, 
And over the years, their staff and students have included and do include uh, many Emmanuel members. Now, this past week, uh, the middle school at Cal um, had an assignment. They were to uh, write a letter, and I'm quoting now from the assignment, write a letter to a friend of your same gender who's struggling with homosexuality. The instruction continued, assume that you've known them uh, since kindergarten, that you go to the same church, that you've been good friends over the years until now, and this friend is your same age. The aim of your letter should be to lovingly and compassionately speak truth to the person you're talking to in a way that does not approve of any sin. Try to persuade them of the goodness of God's design for them. Uh, in addition to that assignment, they actually included how the students would be graded. And honestly, it's, it's great. Uh, the way they line up how, how things ought to be answered. One, you're going to get an excellent grade if you communicate truth lovingly and clearly from Scripture with obvious logical arguments to persuade. That gets you the A+. You get you know a B or a C if uh, in any way you lack, quote, love or clarity and your argument is loosely based on Scripture or logic to persuade. Finally, you would get less points if you communicate with little love or clarity without reference to Scripture or use logic without persuasion. Husbands, there's a note for us. No logic without persuasion. Anyway, now this assignment made the news. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. But before I do, let me just say first, I think this is a fabulous assignment. As a church, we know different kids struggle with homosexual desire in our own fellowship. And I would be the proudest pastor if I knew we had kids in our youth group, and I know we do have kids in our youth group, who could turn to their friends and kindly, graciously, boldly, lovingly, and biblically persuade their friends to abandon a lifestyle that's sinful and harmful in this life and eternity. I've never done an essay this formal with my kids, but I'll tell you, this is the kind of thing that happens around the Fullerton dining room table. This is the kind of conversation we're going for. The kind that equips kids to be able to speak kindly, graciously, boldly, lovingly, and biblically to persuade their friends and classmates away from sin that would destroy them. Well, apparently, one Christian Academy parent did not approve of the assignment that I've just described and passed on the assignment to a local gay businessman by the name of J.P. Davis, a man who's raised over $1 billion for the University of Louisville. Davis posted the assignment to Twitter saying, Modern Day Education Assignment at Christian Academy of Louisville Middle School. Write a letter to your homosexual friend explaining why it's wrong. Shameful. Stop the hate. The story was picked up by the Courier-Journal, WLKY, WDRB, WHAS. Every major Louisville syndicate ran a story dealing with the assignment at Cal, and at least the ones I assume come with that kind of bent of, can you believe 
This is being taught in schools in the year 2022. And since posting the tweet, J.P. Davis has seen a strong and sympathetic reaction. All of our major news channels I mentioned have run the story. And Davis says he's received dozens of messages from Cal alumni expressing the trauma and abuse they experienced at Cal when they sat under this teaching in their time at the Christian Academy. And uh, J.P. Davis assumes that, assures us that Cal can continue to be a Christian school, but they should do so, quote, without teaching hate. In the coming days and weeks, this article was released, I think, Friday. I suspect Cal will be under all kinds of pressure to assure parents that they are not teaching against homosexuality, or if they were, uh, they're going to do it much, much better from now on. In the coming days and weeks, Cal teachers, parents, and students will face the kind of pressure that is not far from any of us. It's the kind of pressure my own kids have faced when they've spoken for the truth at their high schools. It's the kind of pressure that medical professionals will face when they speak against transgenderism or abortion or the medical harm done by homosexual activity. It's the kind of pressure that public school teachers will face when they oversee transgender students in the sports they teach. It's the kind of pressure many of you already faced at work when you're asked to attend and support various kinds of diversity training. And really, it's the kind of pressure, now listen to this, it's the kind of pressure all Christians in this culture will face if they're faithful to preach the biblical message of repentance. This must not be seen by us as a political issue. Or if it is seen as a political issue, it must be first seen for what it is. The offense here is an offense to calling people winsomely, biblically, logically to repent. Cal was doing the very thing a Christian school ought to do. Teach kids how to articulate the Christian message in as biblical and as logical and as persuasive a way as can possibly be done. And we need to be prepared for what is coming to us as Christians. We need to be prepared for the backlash that comes to those who call people to repent. We don't want to get blindsided like, whoa, where did that come from? Peter says, when you suffer for the Gospel, nothing strange is happening to you. There shouldn't be, where did that come from? And it's my job as a preacher and pastor to make it so that when it does come, you go, oh, here it is. This is exactly what I was expecting. I had counted the cost years ago. I saw it coming. Now it's here. And by God's Word, I'm prepared for how to respond. We will be called all of us in our different vocations and different spheres of influence, hateful, traumatic, abusive, behind the times, deplorable, and you can shine your shoes with the biggest, shiniest, winsome language you could ever imagine, and you'll still be called that. 
There will be no way to soften the blow. You should be wise. You should be winsome. You should be kind. You should be biblical. You should be, should be logical. But here, let me just assure you this. You will not be better at being Christ-like than Christ. Can we agree on that? Okay. And they didn't love him. It wasn't like every time you walked into town and they said, finally. And he told us, if they hated me, they will hate you. Now, repentance has been our study for several weeks now. We have been studying the ministry of John the Baptist who prepared for Jesus by preaching, Matthew 3.2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've been looking at the fact that John the Baptist came, Matthew 3.10, with a baptism for repentance. By immersing people in water, he invited them to express their turning away from sin from the heart with the mind and right down to the fingertips. He, he, he called people to do a 180 spiritually, leaving behind ways of sin and self and fleeing to following and trusting in Jesus Christ. And then he promised an amazing promise for those who would repent, that they would receive the Holy Spirit, that they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit with a baptism that could be described only as fire. That is, it would be purifying. As the Holy Spirit reveals Christ to us, makes Christ known to our hearts, shows us His righteousness, His glory, His wrath, His salvation, as the Holy Spirit just shines the spotlight on Jesus, it's got a cleansing effect on the soul as we want to run from sin and run to Christ. Now this morning, we come to something new. We're not looking this morning at John's baptism. And we're not looking this morning at the baptism Jesus will bring, the baptism in the Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. We're actually looking at the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ was Himself baptized. Jesus was baptized. And in the baptism of Jesus, what we're going to find is the reason why Jesus was able to stand against a world that was universally opposed to Him. Now listen to me. I want us to see this morning that in the baptism of Jesus, we're going to see the cause. We're going to see the power why Jesus didn't cave when millions before Him had. And we're going to see in Jesus' baptism the power available to us to stand with Him in a world that is constantly tempting us to cave into the pressures around us. David Wells put it so well. Worldliness is the cultural ethos that makes sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. That's worldliness. How do you get so attuned to God that you have the power to stand for righteousness even when it seems strange? And to speak against sin even when sin seems normal? The answers we will see are pointed to in the baptism of Jesus. 
In the baptism of Jesus, we see where He got the power and we see where we can have that very same power to get today. So let's just begin by walking through the text. First of all, notice verse 13 that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by Him. Matthew portrays Jesus as knowing where He was going and why He was going there. He was going to where this particular prophet was, and He wasn't just going to sniff it out and to check out what was going on. He was going with the explicit purpose of being baptized by John. Now, John did not originally like the idea of baptizing Jesus. John had a prophetic ability to judge character. Remember when the Pharisees and Sadducees come? John's not duped by them. He just sees right through them, says you're hypocrites, you don't need my baptism, it'll just be a religious ceremony for you that increases your hypocrisy. And when Jesus comes, John's got that same sort of prophetic insight, but it goes the opposite direction. This one is too pure for me to baptize. I don't think John had a full Christology or understanding of everything about Jesus, but he recognized in this one someone greater than himself. And if anybody ought to be doing the baptism, John's like, wait a second! It's not me who should be baptizing you. It's you, Jesus, who should be baptizing me. One more indication of what we saw last week, John's extraordinarily Christ-centered Humility. So John originally uh, reproves Jesus. I need to baptize by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus gives John the reason why he ought to be baptized by John. Now, Jesus needed to give this reason. And here's why he needed to give this reason. Because John's baptism, according to verse 10, was for repentance. And it would be very strange if Jesus submitted himself to something that said, I'm repenting. Did you know that this is so wonderful? If Jesus ever changed one of his heart attitudes, one of his thoughts, or one of his actions, he would become sinful. If he ever repented of anything he ever did, it would make him worse. So much is his perfection that he can never improve or correct course. He's always from the heart, in the will, in the mind, and right down to the actions, doing the quintessentially perfect thing in every single moment of his life. So Jesus could not baptize, be baptized for repentance. So why was Jesus baptized? Why was Jesus baptized? Well, he tells us that the reason he needed to be baptized was so that he and John could fulfill all righteousness. Now, there's been a lot of theories over the years about what it means for Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. Some of the early church fathers taught that what Jesus did when he was baptized is he cleaned the water. He cleaned the water for the rest of us who would get baptized in the years to come. Now, I have no doubt that if water needs cleansing, Jesus would do it. But the Bible actually never speaks of this fallen creation as dirty in and of itself. Though this world is sinful, the meat and the cheese and the good things of all that God has made are themselves regarded as clean. 
So I don't think there's anything to the idea that Jesus cleansed the water and consecrated it so that we could be baptized in the future. The other idea, perhaps the most popular idea, when it comes to what Jesus was doing when He fulfilled all righteousness, is that He was identifying with sinners. Why did He get baptized in a baptism that was for sinners? Because He was identifying with sinners. And of course, there's a lot of truth there that Jesus identifies with sinners. The whole reason Jesus is on the cross is because He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So Jesus does identify with sinners. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I don't think that Jesus is primarily coming to identify with sinners. It would be a strange time to identify with Him because He doesn't identify with our repentance. He identifies with our sin, takes it on Himself. But He doesn't repent for us. He doesn't repent like us. He's the perfect Son of God. We don't ever want to see Jesus repent. It would be a step down for Jesus. An infinite step down. So why does Jesus get baptized? How does this fulfill all righteousness? What's going on? And I think the best way to answer the question is just to keep reading the text. As you keep reading the text, I think it becomes clear why He has to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Now notice what happens here when He's baptized. We're told in, John, sorry, in uh, Matthew chapter 3 that when He was baptized, verse 16, immediately He went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to Him and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, I only got one primary theological point this morning. And here it is. In order to fulfill all righteousness, that is, in order to live a life of perfect righteousness, in order to stand when all of His disciples would fall, Jesus had to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know how immediately applicable that feels to you, but I hope in the coming moments that you will begin to see a similarity between yourself and Jesus that you have perhaps never enjoyed before. You see, one of the things uh, we, that can happen to us, and uh, theologian Mark Jones points this out, one of the things that can happen to us is that we know that Jesus is fully God and fully... But when we think about Jesus as fully God and fully man, we sort of, and this is Jones's language, we sort of view His Godhead as gobbling up His manhood. Like really, why can Jesus do miracles? Because He's... And, and why does Jesus never sin? Because He's God. And, and the logic that happens there, maybe concretely, maybe just in the background is, I'll never be like Jesus. Because I'm not God. And I'm never going to be God. And I'm never going to be used to do miracles because that's the kind of thing God does. But you have to understand that when we say that Jesus was fully God and fully man, we can't say He was fully God. 
Amen. We have to recognize that our Savior was a man. And as a man, Jesus lived by faith. He lived by obedience. He lived as a man. He lived with real and actual human frailty. And in order for Jesus to accomplish a public ministry that would speak truth all the time, do miracles whenever needed, raise the dead, uh, cast out demons, and do it all from a heart of sacrifice, willing to die on the cross, Jesus could only accomplish such a ministry the way you could accomplish such a ministry. By being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus needed to be, as a man, empowered by God to live the life He'd been called to live and to do the ministry He'd been called to do. Let me show you a few verses, if I could, of how Jesus lived a life guided and led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And He did this as a man. The God-man, but a man. The first verse I would show you would just be a couple of verses down in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, this ought to encourage you if you're going through a hard time in your life and you're praying, Lord, fill me with Your Spirit, fill me with Your Spirit, fill me with Your Spirit. What does God do when He fills you with Your Spirit? He always gives you a better job. Right, Dan? No, the first thing the Spirit did when He landed on Christ, Matthew chapter 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Here's your new place to live. Here's your new roommate. By the devil. But for our purpose, we'll explore that next week. For our purposes, who was leading Jesus? Well, He was God. He just always knew what to do. Wrong conception. Jesus, like a man, leaned into the leadership of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Holy Spirit. If you go to Luke's Gospel and read these same accounts where Luke tells of Jesus immediately being indwelt by the Holy Spirit and then guided off into the wilderness, Luke then follows it up after Jesus is tempted and says this, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. What led Jesus out of the, into the wilderness? The Spirit. What led Jesus out of the wilderness? The Spirit. When the New Testament wants to summarize the whole ministry of Jesus, when the New Testament preachers wanted to summarize everything Jesus did, they summarize His life as a life anointed by the Spirit to be able to do particular acts. Let me read to you Peter's summary of Jesus' ministry. This comes to us from Acts chapter 10. Peter says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning at Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. Notice that. Peter's summarizing the ministry of Jesus and he dates the beginning of his, Jesus, of his ministry to the baptism in Galilee. Same thing happens in Acts chapter 2. The New Testament church saw Jesus' ministry not as all of his life 
years on earth, but as those years from the point of His baptism until His resurrection. This was the ministry of Jesus. And so here we're told, Peter says, you yourselves know, he's speaking to the audience, what happened throughout all Judea, beginning at Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. God who? God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit's presence with Jesus is why Jesus healed, cast out demons, and was constantly doing good. Now, He was fully God and fully man, but there is an active and immediate involvement in His life of the Holy Spirit enabling and helping Him to lead him, guide him, to, to enable him to do miracles, cast out demons. Jesus wasn't just walking through life exercising his God prerogative. In fact, we know that in many ways Jesus put aside the prerogatives of being God. Remember, he learned the alphabet. He got lost from his parents. Their fault, not his. He was a man. And as a man, he leaned into the Holy Spirit he knew so well because he was God. And he was led by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, spoke by the Spirit, ministered by the Spirit, healed by the Spirit, did exorcisms by the Spirit. In fact, the book of Hebrews, according to one interpretation, would say he died by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews specifically said, it was through the eternal Spirit that He offered Himself without blemish to God. Now, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to drop a few verses here, but I just want to make you aware of them at least. On at least three occasions, the book of Isaiah that's been so important to us in the last year, pinpoints the servant of the Lord, the coming Messiah, as the one who would minister by the Spirit. Isaiah 11, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Isaiah 62, and the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Isaiah 42, now this is the one that's actually the most important for us to understand. Isaiah 42 actually uh, puts this in language that you're just going to hear Matthew chapter 3 all over it. Matthew chapter 3 is all over Isaiah 42. What do we see in Matthew chapter 3? Spirit rests upon Him. God delights in Him. It fulfills all righteousness. Listen to Isaiah 42. Verse 1. Behold My servant whom I am uphold, who I uphold, My chosen one, in whom my soul delights. This is my beloved one, in whom I am well pleased. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice. Very similar idea to righteousness. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Beloved, the point I want to make, and I, I wish I could spend about 20 more minutes making it, but if you haven't got it yet, maybe you pray now and help me out. Our Lord Jesus Christ lived a life more similar to ours 
not less. He lived not constantly thinking, I got this, I'm God. But constantly saying, oh Lord, help. Constantly leaning into the leadership, the help, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And then what he did is often attributed to the Holy Spirit. So when we see the activity, the sinlessness, the power, the preaching of Jesus, we shouldn't just say, that's God, not like me. We should say, that's the God-man. And as a man like me, leaning into the Holy Spirit who is able and willing to empower me. Now I want to apply this in a number of different ways. So let's uh, come back down to earth after seeing all these glorious things for a few moments. How do these wonderful truths affect us? We're here on earth in a culture that does not despise us so much for our doctrine, but for our ethics, our standards of righteousness, our view of men, women, babies, and marriage, and sex. These are the things that get us despised in our day. Now, these aren't unrelated to Christ. We should know that, right? Because our view of men and women, babies, is that they're made in the image of God, who's fulfilled in the image of Christ. Our view of marriage is not just that it's some culturally conservative, helpful way to build a civilization, but it's a reflection of Christ and His church. So the things that are getting us in so much trouble, even though the world might not say, I hate your Jesus, the things that are getting us so much trouble are deeply related to what we believe about Jesus. And so how does His baptism help us? How would it help the administrators at Cal to stand? How would it help us when persecution comes knocking on our door? When shame keeps coming to our door? When a tough decision that might blow your job that you trained so hard for would cause you to walk away from it in a day. How does the baptism of Jesus help us then? If time permits, I'll give you five quick reasons. Five quick ways it helps us. First of all, the baptism of Jesus in water and the Spirit fulfills all righteousness. The baptism of Jesus in water, in the Spirit, fulfills all righteousness. Every religion in the world and every worldview has a standard of righteousness. Every religion in the world and every worldview has a standard of righteousness. So for Islam, the standard of righteousness is submission to Allah. It's going to Mecca. It's giving to poor. It's embracing as many wives up to four as you can take on. These are all the standards of righteousness. In a progressive America, the standards of righteousness are accepting everyone. Letting any sexual perversion go. Letting anyone decide who they are just based on what's going on in their heart. That is the standard of righteousness. Jesus doesn't fulfill those standards of righteousness. The standard of righteousness He fulfills is the law of God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors yourself. You don't make any idols. You don't dishonor your parents. You don't steal. You don't covet. You love. This is the standard of righteousness that Jesus fulfilled. And filled by the Spirit, He did, in fact, fulfill a life of perfect 
righteousness. The Spirit was upon Him to do the things we keep failing to do. And He did them till the very end. Filled with the Spirit, He was living a life of perfect righteousness. And then He gave that perfect righteous life on the cross to satisfy the demands of God's perfect righteousness. God's perfect righteousness says there must be an atonement for sin. There must be condemnation against sin. There must be destruction of sin. And Jesus comes and says, I've fulfilled it all. I was born under the law. I've kept every bit of the law. Been obedient to the law. Even to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And I offer my life of perfect righteousness to pay for your life of continual unrighteousness. And then I'll give you the same Spirit so you can walk in a life of righteousness like me. It's amazing! It's amazing! Dear believers, you are going to face times in the coming years, unless we see massive, wide-scale revival, and even then, you are going to see times where your job is threatened, your good name is threatened, your, your self-image is threatened by who you are in Christ. And you need to know, the world will say, you are unrighteous, you are abusive, you are hateful, you are wicked, and you have to be settled in this. No. The one standard of righteousness that matters is God's. It's been utterly fulfilled by Jesus. And to the extent that I'm being like Him, I'm just continuing the marvelous work of the Spirit to fulfill all righteousness. That's the confidence we need. That's the confidence we need. Second, here's how this helps you. Here's how this story helps us. All of God is the wind filling your sails. All of God is the wind filling your sails. You ever notice how just like one phone call from someone, one smile from one person is just super encouraging? Like your wife says, you're really great at that. You're like, I... So now I'm unbearable, right? My brother called me the other night to tell me an encouraging word about me. And I'm like, thank you. So encouraging. Beloved, we do not have the commitment of a spouse or a friend or a brother. We have every person of the Trinity aiming for our salvation. This is one of the great Trinitarian passages of the entire Bible. Where is Jesus in this passage? He is being baptized for one reason. To receive a Spirit so He can accomplish a ministry that will bring you salvation. Where is the Spirit in this passage? He is coming down on Jesus like a dove to equip Him for a ministry that will be your salvation. Where is the Father in this passage? He is in heaven saying, I like it. I like it. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This Son embarking on this mission makes me very happy. He did not squeak out of heaven because I'm so hard and stingy. He was going to go and be merciful and save you. No, I sent Him. And now all three members of the Trinity are the wind in your sails. Brothers and sisters, the world may be against us, but greater is He than is in you. Than He who is in the world. Third, the pattern of Jesus' baptism is the pattern of the normal Christian life. 
The pattern of Jesus' baptism is the pattern of the normal Christian life. All over the place. He's like, you follow me. How? Just do what I do. Where do I start? Get baptized, receive the Spirit, and then embark on a ministry led by the Spirit. That's the normal Christian life. Get baptized, receive the Spirit, enjoy the Father saying to you, you are my beloved. That's what the Spirit does when He comes into us, right? This testifies now that we are the children of God and then sends us out by the Spirit to serve Him and love Him, suffer for Him, succeed in Him. Depends on the day, what He chooses, but we walk in Him. Beloved, this was the way the New Testament church preached the Gospel. They preached the Gospel this way. Listen to the first ever Gospel application ever given. Acts 2.38, Holy Spirit's been poured out. Peter's preaching the Gospel. People are asking what they do, what should they do to be saved. And Peter says this, Repent, turn from your sins. This we do to prepare for Him. Be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This we do trusting and following in Him. For the forgiveness of sins, this can be ours because He fulfilled all righteousness. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit Jesus relied on is given to us. And then we're baptized in the Spirit. Now we walk in Him. Beloved, this is a church that by and large knows the rules. What are husbands supposed to do? Love their wives. Good for you. What are wives supposed to do? Submit to their husbands. There we go. All right. How many women should be pastors? Oh, none of them. Okay. And yet how many of us lack the power to do those very things. Oh, we can condemn it on the news when we see someone trying to pervert it. We're mad. How can you believe it? Do we have love? That love will never come out of you alone. You must be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. If Jesus Christ needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, as one preacher put it, how much more you? And if Jesus Christ received the Holy Spirit and you are in Him, won't He answer you when you call out to be filled? Shouldn't your, if your prayer life starts to sound radically desperate for the Spirit, fill me, fill me. Let me walk in You. Lord God, even evil fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. Will You not give the Holy Spirit to me? Fill me. We need to be praying like that until Emmanuel is not just a place that points a finger at those who are breaking the rules. But until Emmanuel is a sweet place where the believers are keeping the rules in the power of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, if you do that, they won't just feel like rules, will they? They'll feel like the easy burden that God gives to us. i got to sit down. That does mean I have a couple more. Maybe they'll come out. Maybe they won't. We'll see. This is enough to chew on. 
the situation with Cal reminds us that the time for choosing is going to be imminently upon us in this culture. And we don't dare just see these things as political. They are pastoral concern issues. They are ways we care for each other in our GCGs, in our friendships. We help each other draw lines from the Scriptures that we will not cross. And then we pray for the Holy Spirit to keep us from crossing those lines. I've thought to myself, there may be particular businesses, vocations, industries, doctors, teachers, others, that maybe should start getting together in small groups. I'd love to meet with you. Discussing what's happening in the workplace. Discussing what the particular challenges are. Discussing where the temptations are to be unfaithful. Drawing lines, as D.A. Carson put it, even when drawing lines is rude. And then pleading with God to make us as savvy and wise and empowered as Jesus was Himself. So that we would walk in holiness, even if that gets us raises right to the top like Joseph, or if it gets us imprisoned like Joseph. Both can happen in one life. But that we would be a people marked by the Holy Spirit of God. And if we are, we'll be a lot like Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray and ask You that You would anoint us by Your Holy Spirit. Freshly, fill us. Fill us so that we can walk in holiness, so that we can walk in miraculous power, so that we can walk with miraculous confidence and joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.